Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and Jerry's over there. The three amigos, equal in every single way, shape, and form. Uh, and that makes this, of course, Stuff You Should Know, which is basically its own sovereign nation of equality. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Oh, yeah, man. Come on. Give me a break. I always thought Jerry had more power than we did. No, not a drop more, <laughs> okay. nor a drop less. Nary a drop less, Charles. I love it. Yeah, I do too. It's a nice place to be. It's a nice state to live in, you know, (laughs) mentally and physically. Agreed. Uh, I think here at the beginning, we're going to do a rare, we're not going to read a listener mail, but a rare front-loaded listener mail uh, alert that we got. Um, First of all, a couple of years ago, uh, a woman named Doreen Bailey suggested the topic of the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, And at the time, pointed out the difference between the words suffragette and suffragist. Uh I clearly did not read that email close enough because it took an email last week after one of us said suffragette in a a recent episode. Uh uh, And a woman named Mary Malinoskis uh, emailed and said, hey, by the way, look it up. I mean, she wasn't mean. She was very nice. <laughs> that sounded like I was being <laughs> not too nice. Yeah. She's very nice about it. She said, you know, look it up. There's uh suffragette is sort of a disparaging term uh-huh. uh, rather than suffragist. And it was tagged by, you know, reporters in the early 1900s, a thing in, I think in Britain to mock people fighting for the women's right to vote. And I didn't know that until then. So I'm glad to know. So thank you, Mary. Yeah, and once you hear that, it's it makes total sense, you know. Well, of course. I just, I don't know. I never knew that, never thought about it. I didn't either. This is how people learn stuff. I just assumed you were making a Bowie reference in the episode. I thought it was you that said it. I'm pretty sure it was you. <laughs> All right. Well, either way. Now let's we go know. With, let's go with you. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we probably both did, or more more to the point, it probably was me. But either way, that was a, I think, a hats off to you, buddy, for for coming up with that one. Well, I'll not say it again. You what? Oh, you won't say it anymore? No, of course not. Okay. I thought you said, well, and I'll say it again. No, no, no. (laughs) I think that's the opposite of what you were just saying. No, I won't. So we're talking today about the Equal Rights Amendment, which um, is, it represents a really, like, discouragingly long swath of American Mm -hmm. history. Um, But if you set, if you look at the whole thing just from a historian's eye or even an anthropologist's eye, it's really, really interesting, the history of this, the Equal Rights Amendment. If you kind of look at it much more subjectively and empathically, empathetically, it's a lot harder to swallow. But it's still interesting nonetheless. And the totally equal, agree. Yeah. So the Equal Rights Amendment is an a constitutional amendment, a proposed constitutional amendment that would give women um, equal protection under the law to men, that you could not discriminate. You, there, no, you couldn't make a law that discriminated on the basis of sex. And I'll bet there's a lot of people out there, Chuck, that say, well, that's already in the Constitution, isn't it? Because there was a poll that the AP conducted in 2020 they found that about 72% of the people they they uh, contacted thought that there was already equal protection for for women 
in the Constitution. That's just not the case. But that same poll found 75% of those respondents were in favor of enshrining that protection in the Constitution. So it's kind of weird that it's not in there if people think it's already in there. And then when they find out it's not, they're in favor of it overwhelmingly. Yeah. But, we, you know, we just happen to live in a country where— 90% of the American public could be in favor of certain legislation, mm-hmm. and it would, you know, could very possibly fall on deaf ears when it comes to our politicians. Yeah, yes, um, because bipartisan support has been defined in recent times as, you know, what the houses of Congress agree to, not necessarily what the public agrees to, which is a different form of bipartisanship. And to me, if you ask me, the more important one. Like if the, if the public generally agrees on something, go with that. The, it seems like since they're elected representatives in Congress, they should kind of go with that. So, Josh, it, 2022. Yes, I can't wait. It's going to be, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of big changes around here, everybody. Yeah, so should we kind of go back to the beginnings Yes, we should. Because it's, you know, I associate the ERA with the 70s and the Women's yeah. Lib movement, as we'll see, but sure. it goes back a lot further than that. Yeah, it does. And it's it's crazy to think that since the early 1920s, they've been trying to get this enshrined in the Constitution, and it still isn't in the year 2021, but mm-hmm. that is the case. Um, mm-hmm. The first versions of the Equal Rights Amendment were written up in the early 20s by a suffragist. Uh, named Alice Paul, um, some other women, notably uh, one Crystal Eastman, also helped out a lot. Mm-hmm. And they also helped get the 19th Amendment passed, which gave women the right to vote uh, in 1920. And they got together and said, um, you know, I think the next step, obviously, should be just to go ahead and put this in the Constitution that women have equal rights like men in all facets of life. Uh, it's worth pointing out here um, that um, Paul was a Quaker. Mm-hmm. and a leader of the National Women's Party for like 50 years or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason I mentioned she was a Quaker, because she actually named the amendment the Lucretia Mott Amendment uh, after another Quaker woman from the mm-hmm. 19th century who was also a suffragist as, as well as an abolitionist. Yeah, if you peel back, you know, the layer of a early 20th century or 19th century progressive, there's a about a 100% chance they were a Quaker. Quakers I know, did man. all sorts of good stuff during it's this It's pretty time. interesting. Yeah, it really is. We should do one on the Quakers for sure. Yeah, um, I have a friend who's a Quaker, and uh, she talks about Quaker meetings and Quaker weddings and stuff, and it all just seems so chill and peaceful. It's, <laughs> it's very appealing. Right, sure. Um but so Lucretia Mott apparently was among what's considered the the beginning of the first wave of feminism, which was, you know, um, not only do women need the right to vote. And this is like the 1830s, 1840s, yeah. I think, is when she was really beginning to be active. Um, not only should women have the right to vote, but um, these people were also very frequently also abolitionists, right? So when um, Congress started passing laws that protected the rights, that enshrined the rights of African Americans into the Constitution, into the law of the land, saying you cannot discriminate against people uh, based on their, because they're African-American or based on their race, Um, women said, well, hey, just add sex in there. Add sex. Like, let's let's put that into the 14th Amendment. And um, that didn't make it. 
uh, it didn't make it into any of the amendments. And that was a, I don't think it caused a rift or anything like that, but I think it was extremely disappointing to the suffragists who had also worked for abolition as well, that the two things couldn't go hand in hand. So um, African-Americans started to gain civil rights decades before women did. Uh, Women gained the right to vote, um, and women just kind of had to carry on. The suffragist movement continued on even after the abolitionist movement was successful. Yeah, and in uh, 1943, Alice Paul said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll reword this amendment that we've written so it sounds more constitutional, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it sounds a little more like the 14th Amendment. And the new version basically said equal rights – I'm sorry, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once again, this was proposed in – you know, for about 30 years in most sessions, I think every session of Congress. Every single one. And didn't get a lot of support. Um, and, you know, it, it's not to say that all men in politics were against it, but it certainly was not their legislative priority, clearly. And if you have a run from 1922 to 1970 with only 10 women serving in the Senate, never more than two at a time, then the writing's on the wall that the ERA is is not – just it's just not going to be a top priority. I know, but that's sad writing. You know what I mean? Like the fact oh, totally. that there weren't women uh, in Congress certainly doesn't let men off the hook. Like they can't no. do the, they can't pass this, can't possibly take up legislation that guarantees the equal rights to women because we're men. You know, like that's that's very bothersome. But there's yes. something else in there, Chuck. So from 1920, 1923, when Alice Paul first introduced that, all the way through. To 1970, it was taken up in every session of Congress, and it failed. And one of the things that stuck out to me was that there was a guy who um, oversaw the House, I think the House Judiciary Committee, um, and he was a Democrat from New York, and he put the kibosh on it. Emanuel Seller? Yeah. So he put the kibosh on it. He would not let it get to a vote. And I was like, why? This guy was a Democrat in New York. What was his problem? And it turns out that the opposition to the ERA, which is now very clearly among, like, it's liberals are for it, progressives are for it, conservatives are typically against it. Um, it used to be flip flopped, where the liberals, especially New Deal liberals like Eleanor Roosevelt, were against the Equal Rights Amendment, and conservatives like Eisenhower conservatives were typically in favor of it. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, it is. I mean, Roosevelt, she had her reasons. She wasn't just like, oh, I don't think women should have rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she said, you know, she thought it would undermine workplace protections. Um, she was a part of Kennedy's commission. Uh, she chaired the commission, mm-hmm. uh, the president's commission on the status of women, which I think the result was released posthumous, uh, posthumously that said it wasn't – the ERA wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. And she she kind of came around a little bit. She never gave a full-throated endorsement, but she kind of stopped talking out against it, I think, at yeah, a certain point. She used to debate Alice Paul. Like, publicly, they would, you know, have back-and-forth debates over, you know, whether the ERA was needed and how helpful it was going to be. So, I mean, you don't – like, I, I know that um, Eleanor Roosevelt is frequently criticized as not uh, outright feminist enough in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, but she also – clearly seems to have been a feminist in her own way, for sure. 
Yeah, and uh, we should point out, too, that Emanuel Seller in 1972, in a very big upset, lost uh, to a woman, an attorney named Elizabeth Holtzman, Mm -hmm. largely due to his opposition to the ERA. So, yeah, okay, so so finally, by the early 70s, you're getting more and more women who are starting to show up in in Congress, um, like Bella Asbug and Shirley Chisholm, and they they basically said, like, this is our priority. We're going to get this this Equal Rights Amendment finally passed through Congress. And I don't know if it just happened to be like an era of kind of bipartisan sentiment um, or— what the deal was, but the, everybody finally came together, and that thing got passed. Like, if a piece of legislation's ever gotten passed, it was this one in a bipartisan manner. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, we'll get to how that passed, but a, a really big reason is because it started becoming a big deal in the media with this second wave, like you mentioned, of uh, the women's lib movement, and in no small part by a woman named Betty Friedan, who wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique that in 1964 sold a million copies. And it's a, she, she probably gets a, a, at least a short stuff all on her own. She was mm-hmm. really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason she wrote this book is because she did a survey for a college reunion uh, for her former classmates, learned that many of her former female classmates were not super happy about being homemakers and not being able to work. And sent her down a research rabbit hole on this, kind of became her passion project because uh, she wanted to write a magazine article, like mm-hmm. a really in-depth one. No one wanted it, so she ended up publishing it as a book called The Feminine Mystique, which kind of rocked the world of America <laughs> in the early uh, early to mid-60s. Yeah, because like in this book, she's basically saying like this whole this whole thing we're all we're all going along with, this idea that the the most I, the highest ideal a woman can aspire to is to be the best wife and mother she possibly can be and that that's her identity is as someone's wife as someone's mother that she doesn't have her own identity uh, that's independent of all of that that is a crushing uh, a way to live for a lot of women not all women as we'll see but a lot of women and she spoke up for a lot of them um and i i believe that this was kind of it was already kind of out there in pieces like people were talking about this but betty Friedan like put it all together and put it on the map and, and got everyone talking. From what I've ever seen, like almost single-handedly started the second wave of feminism. Yeah, and she uh, put a pin in this little miniseries. Uh, she was played by Tracy Ullman uh, in a miniseries last year called Mrs. America mm-hmm. that we're going to get to a little more in depth in a second. Yeah. So um, Betty Friedan publishes The Feminine Mystique. Like you said, just totally rocked everybody's world for uh, for better or worse, depending on your ideas about what the feminine mystique was about and saying. Um, But yeah, like you're saying, like that really laid the groundwork to this bipartisan um, uh, passing in Congress of uh, the Equal Rights Amendment in 1972, I believe, right? Yeah. So it passes in a big way. I think you said 93%, 93. 93.4 in the House, 91.3 in the Senate. But Which I, I can't wrap my head around that. How did one third of a senator <laughs> vote? Is that that Senator Cross section of New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Michigan? <laughs> uh, here's the deal, though. If you want something enshrined in the Constitution, that's a big deal in this country. Uh, they don't do it willy nilly, nor should they. Um, 
But you need not only like once it passes that, it's not automatic. Then the state legislatures have to ratify it Mm -hmm. by a two thirds margin, which means at least 38 states have to ratify it. Um, And the ERA had a stipulation that said if that isn't done in seven years, then you got to go back to the drawing board. And that was that was not in the actual ERA. That was not in the constitutional amendment that was passed. And that's going to become very important later. But it was in the legislation where that ERA, the amendment, was sent to the states for ratification. It said do this in seven years. Right. Okay, that's uh, that's just like that little slight distinction makes a big difference down the road. Oh yeah, I mean the ER people pushing for the ERA certainly would not have wanted an expiration date. No, and there's as far as I could tell, they haven't ever attached an expiration date to an amendment to be ratified before. It was just, and it was also an arbitrary period of time too. So just just chew on that. Put put that wadded up piece of gum in the back of your cheek and save it for later. I wonder in the debate if they're like. Well, I mean, how many years? Oh, seven. Seven yeah. sounds sure. good. <laughs> Pour the scotch. Uh, <laughs> so, within one year, um, thirty of the thirty-eight states needed ratified it, which was super fast. Yeah, and everyone was like, you know, proponents were like, "This is great, man! It looks like this thing is going to sail right into the Constitution." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a woman popped up named Phyllis Schlafly. And we're going to take a break here, and we'll talk about Phyllis right after this. And I guess, depending on where your views are, Chuck, we should have introduced Phyllis Shafley with the um, the Darth Vader theme song <laughs> when she may, first makes her appear. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That's exactly right. Did you watch any of these yeah. interviews and debates? Yes, dude. You could— It's really interesting. If you have your wits about you, you could despise everything that ever came out of Phyllis Schlafly's mouth. It's very, very easy to do. Um, She equates gay people, uh, which I guess in the fashion of the time she calls homosexuals. She calls them perverts. Yeah. And says that they should not have any rights afforded to married men and women. They shouldn't be able to adopt children. She says some really despicable— I didn't hear that one. Yeah. She says a lot of very despicable stuff. Um, and her whole viewpoint is despicable to a lot of people. But there are very few people walking around out there who have the poise and self-possession yeah. to go into the lion's den and speak for whatever she was convinced of was right. Um that's you. She has to be credited to at least that degree. No matter what you think about her mind, she was. She had a lot of poise, I guess you could say, and it's really kind of something to watch. Because I saw this one. Did you see the the Good Morning America debate from 1976 between her and Ferdan? Yeah, man. And it's like it's really clear what a skilled debater she was. Yeah. And how rattled she could get somebody. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she clearly, I felt bad for, for Dan. She was doing a good job, but she was, she was getting pissed off and you could tell 
that she just liked to get under people's skin. Yes. While she just remained perfectly, you know, erect in her seat with perfect posture. Mm-hmm. And uh, that Mrs. America series, which it was on our list, and I'm going to bump it back up to next in line now mm-hmm. to watch. But uh, she was played um, really, really well, judging from just the the accent and the mannerisms by uh, Kate Blanchett, mm-hmm. who can do no wrong. Yeah, I want to see that series too. Um, but yeah, she. So if you see those two debating, it's like a study in contrast where yeah. Phyllis Schlafly, Schlafly is um, basically sitting there at tea time at the country club before the mm-hmm. polo match. Yeah. And Betty Friedan, if you put like a beret and sunglasses uh-huh. and a French cigarette in her mouth, <laughs> she's like sitting at the beatnik cafe, like listening yeah. to a poetry jam or something. Like It's, it's pretty just, funny. Just these two totally contrasting personalities. But yeah, Shaffley debated her under the table. And it's not like Betty Friedan was was an intellectual slouch by any measure. But no, not at all. It, it's just Phyllis Schlafly could rattle anybody. Anybody. She could rattle Santa Claus. I'm, I'm just going to say it. Yeah, I mean, she kind of um, made herself out to be just this homemaker. Um, she would intro- when she introduced herself at engagements, she would thank her husband for letting her come there. <laughs> but when you kind of peek behind the curtain, she had a master's in political science. Mm-hmm. She had a law degree. She ran for Congress when she was 27 years old and lost. Right, and she was um, sort of pre 1980s a big part in. At the very least, I don't even think they called it the Christian right at the time, Not but yet. kind of organizing what would later become the Christian right movement. Yeah, you can make a really good case that Phyllis Schlafly um, laid the groundwork for the current Republican Party yeah. in every way from from Reagan onward to today. Um, and, and yeah, she basically said, like, I'm just a housewife from St. Louis, proud housewife, wife and mother of six from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um and in a lot of ways, she was like she made reference to law school during her debate to Betty Friedan, and she sounded like she was in law school then. So oh, interesting. It seems like she was just a woman who said, "I don't agree with this, and I'm going to put a stop to it," and stood in front of this unstoppable tidal wave and stopped it. Yeah. She. St- Stopped it. She stopped the ERA from being ratified by the states right at the 11th and a half hour before it was ever passed and ratified by the 38 states. You said they got 30 states in the first year. By 1977, they were up to 35 states. They just needed three more, three more states. And the whole thing was going to become the law of the land. And Phyllis Schlafly got in the way of that almost single-handedly at first. Yeah, and, you know, she launched uh, – her her group was called Stop ERA, which, you know, we obsess about acronyms. It's sort of annoying when the first letter of an acronym is the actual acronym. Yeah. But Stop ERA stood for Stop Taking Our Privileges. And her argument, you know, she was like and, – and she used this to her advantage in those debates. Like, see how angry these feminists are? These, right. She's, she kind of – coined that term, I think, about the angry women's live movement, these angry feminists. Right. They just want they want to, to, to throw down everything that makes us uh, female and everything that makes us women, and they want to just set fire to it. And before you know it, women are going to be able to be drafted in the armed forces. Never happened. Uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be separate bathrooms or locker rooms anymore from this point on. Uh-huh. Not true. That started to happen more in recent years. Uh-huh. Uh, wrapped up same-sex marriage. I mean, we'll we'll get to that. How she <laughs> kind of uh, co-opted 
uh, gay rights and um, reproductive rights into all this just to sort of coalesce that movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and said, you know, women are going to lose their right to alimony and child support. Never happened. And just the life as we know it and the family as we know it. And this is something 50 years on. All this stuff is still so relevant, like the dissolution of what, you know, people think was the, the perfect family in 1950, basically. Yeah, because, I mean, so she was a troll, like a, a proto-troll, but like the kind where you didn't do it online, you did it in person. But right. her her points were coherent and understandable to people who agreed with her. And sure. they were that like, yeah, like the man's role is to provide for and take care of the woman. And the woman provides like the domestic labor. And that's just the division of labor between the sexes. And if if we have the CRA, that's going to go away. And then there's going to be all this other horrible stuff of that's going to break down the fabric of society. And do we really want that? And so by by taking the argument away from the idea of whether women have a fundamental human right to equal protection under the law as men, which is, who disagrees with that? Nobody disagrees with that. Uh, And mixing it up with all these other what-ifs and potential social outcomes and Uh the ruin of the family, gay men teaching your children at school, um, that is what consolidated people into a movement behind Phyllis Schlafly. And it was yeah. it was really underhanded, but it worked really, really well. And it still works today. Like, it she does. came up with that, from what I can tell. Yeah, in 73, when uh, Roe v. Wade passed, she was, uh, again, savvy enough to say, well, here's something else I can... I can seize on mm-hmm. and I can wrap this up. Like I, there's a, there's a whole, there's a really large block of voters who are uh, conservative Christians who, you know, we've never really intermingled politics like that before. And so let's wrap this up in pro-choice. Let's wrap it up with gay rights, big culture war issues of the time mm-hmm. to kind of rally. And like I said, coalesce this group together in order to defeat the equal rights amendment. And like you said, it, you know, it, <laughs> It worked in a big, big way, and uh, I can't wait to watch that TV show. I can't either. And I don't want to suck all the oxygen away from Betty Friedan and the other feminists, but um, I was saying that Phyllis Schlafly was a a troll, a proto-troll. And if you read some of the stuff that she said in public, sometimes she sounds like a spokesperson for the Taliban. Like, she said things like um, that, that sexual harassment on the job was not a problem for virtuous women. Like, Like you know, exactly. Um, Or and that the atom bomb was a marvelous gift that was given to our country by a wise God. Just things that would drive any any liberal or progressive, uh, especially a feminist up the wall. And in fact, uh, Betty Friedan in this very famous debate from three years before that Good Morning America appearance that you and I saw, um, she said, uh, you're, you're, you're like, you should be burned at the stake for, for betraying your, your gender. Basically. Yeah, she didn't do herself any favors with stuff like that because that just allowed Schlafly to say, see there? See exactly. how angry they all are? That's exactly right. But she could just get under your skin like that. So fast forward many, many years to kind of now almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2017, after about 40 years of not much movement, uh, Nevada became the first new state to ratify the ERA, uh, thanks in no small part to State Senator Pat Spearman. And she said this bill is about equality, period. Mm-hmm. Um, 2018, just a few years ago, Illinois 
um, came aboard as well. And now it's back up to 37. Did we mention that five of the states uh, de-ratified or rescinded their ratification? I don't think we did. We did not. And I think that's an important point here. Yeah, Nebraska, Tennessee, Idaho, Kentucky, and South Dakota. You can all be after, very proud of your legislatures. <laughs> after 1977, they um, de-ratified or decertified, not decertified, they rescinded it. They did, and, and they said this is based on, there's actually precedence for that. Ohio and New Jersey both rescinded their support for the 14th Amendment once their legislatures changed control to um, white supremacists, basically, in the 19th century. They said, we take back our, our vote for the 14th Amendment. It also set a precedent, though, that Congress ignored that and still counted Ohio and New Jersey as having ratified the 14th Amendment because they did officially. Right. So it goes back up to 35. Then uh, in 2018, Illinois made it 37. In January of last year, Mm -hmm. it's crazy that it took this long, Mm -hmm. uh, Virginia finally became the 38th state. And so proponents of the ERA said, all right, we got there. Uh, That's the 38th. Um, This thing should have never had an expiration date to begin with. That's dumb. Whoever said seven years and then poured a scotch, they should be burned at the stake. (laughs) And um, they said, let's just get this thing done. And and they said, you know what? Back in 1798, uh, the 27th Amendment was passed but not ratified until 200 years later, 202 years. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's precedent there. And that was about prohibiting the law raising or lowering taxes for congressional salaries uh, from taking effect until their next term, like big, big stuff. Mm-hmm. Not knocking it. It's it's important, I guess. But they said, you know, that was done. So this thing shouldn't have had an expiration date to begin with. Right. Opponents say, well, no, there was an expiration date, so we have to honor it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, that's the deal. Sorry. And there was even a three-year extension that brought it up to 1982. And by the time that extension was running out and it did not look like anything was going to move or happen or no more states were going to move to ratify it, uh, even the, 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 the National Organization for Women and other feminist groups basically threw in the towel and said it's done. We, the ERA lost this time. It's not gone forever, but this amazing, Im- immense, ti- again, tidal wave this, with just the momentum of a freight train running through the country is now dead just a few years after, which is just nuts that that happened. It's just crazy. But that's, that's the fact that now 38 states have officially voted in favor of ratifying it, set off a flurry of lawsuits here in the United States when Virginia became the last one in 2020. And basically everybody and anyone suing the National Archives and Records Administration um, to either certify and put it into the National Archives or the National mm-hmm. Record that um, that this is now a part of the Constitution or to not do that. And it's totally up in the air of what that's going to be. But apparently, um, a, a lot of people, not everyone, because there's plenty of people who are like, it's official now. Take all the BS away, and this is yeah. an official law of the land. Um, there are plenty of people who are proponents of the Equal Rights Amendment who say, we need to start over again. And one of those people um, was Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg, who said it needs to be voted on again. We need to pick up again, basically, from square one. Yeah, and I think, and we'll talk about all this stuff, but I think there have been so many laws enacted since then that do protect so many of these rights. I think people like 
uh, RBG were like, you know what, let's start over. Let's rewrite it for the modern times, um, making sure everything is in there that we still need. And yeah, and, and re-vote on it. Yep. And, you know, I think that's reasonable. So do that. So let's let's take a break, um, and then we'll talk. Come back and talk about those questions, like do we need the ERA, and what would happen if we did pass the ERA? How about that? Sounds good. All right, Chuck. So you made mention of like a lot of laws that have been created since the since um, the ERA was um, uh, passed, I guess, by Congress, uh, and even before then, that protect women as a as a, a form of a, what's called a protective class in the United States. There are protective classes that include um, races, religions, um, sex. Uh, the sexual orientation uh, and gender identity is becoming a protected class. And if you're a member of a protected class, it means that if there's a law that excludes you from something, whether intentionally or not, that law is considered discriminatory and you can file a lawsuit against it. And then the courts have to apply different um, tests to it to see just how discriminatory it is or if it's discriminatory at all and whether or not it should be struck down or overruled. Um, And the reason that sex is a protected class, even without the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, is thanks very much largely to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is an absolute legal pioneer in figuring out how to get women the protections under the law um, that they were looking for with the Equal Equal Rights Amendment without the Equal Rights Amendment being part of the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think people that say that we don't need the ERA, and it's a very fine line between saying I'm against the ERA and saying I don't think we need the ERA. Mm-hmm. It's It all falls under the same banner ultimately. Yeah. But people that say we don't need the ERA say, you know, we got the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Uh, you can't hire and fire peer, uh, hire and fire people based on that. Right. Uh, that applies to pay and benefits too. There's also the Equal Pay Act of 1963 that say there should be equal pay for equal work. That's didn't, you know, in practice hasn't worked out that way because there's still a wage gap. We did a good episode on that. Back yeah, in that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, Violence Against Women Act of 1994, uh, saying here are federal resources for domestic and sexual uh, violence um, and, you know, like, prevention and prosecution of that, uh, counseling. And uh, this one, however, and, you know, put a pin in this one because this is one that is used also for people that say we do need the ARA because that one expired and is still hung up and has not gotten congressional reauthorization since 2019 because of politics. The Violence Against Women Act. Yeah, and then Title IX is the last one in 1972. Uh, Title IX is the one you hear about mostly in college athletics that Mm -hmm. says, uh, I mean, it says a lot of things, but in terms of college athletics, it had the biggest impact saying, you got to have the same amount of uh, women's sports as men's sports uh, and the same like accommodations and uh, scholarships and all that stuff. And then so So it's like we don't need the ERA because we have all these things. So, yeah. So you have law and then you also have case law, too, that um, 
basically hinges on the 14th Amendment, which says that a citizen of the United States can't be discriminated against or, or is due equal protection under the law um, by the states and by the U.S. And that was written in the in, 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 um, passed in the 14th Amendment in the wake of slavery. It was meant to um, basically make free, recently freed African Americans full citizens of the United States. But it doesn't specify on the basis of race or on the basis of religion. It just says if you're a U.S. citizen, you get equal protection under the law. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the reasons she's such a legal pioneer in this respect is because she's the one who figured out how to argue that the 14th Amendment applies to sex as well. And the whole thing about legal stuff, and this is all new to me, but but it's really kind of interesting, mm-hmm. is that depending on how enshrined a class is, a protected group is in law, um, the more protected it is, the stricter the scrutiny that judges are going to apply to determining whether a law is discriminatory or not. And the most the most scrutiny you can apply to something is called strict scrutiny, and that's typically reserved for things that are protected by the Constitution. And that means that if you have a law that even remotely steps on the rights of one of those protected classes, it's probably an illegal discriminatory law. Yeah, how does that work with... Uh how does that work in practice? Does that mean they just spend more time or like what what does that even mean? So I think what it means is that you if you pass a law and let's say that I pass a law and it accidentally discriminates against your ability to get your hands on oatmeal. I can get all the oatmeal I want, but you can't. Let's say in the Constitution, Chuck is specifically protected under the law. That means that this law that prevents you from getting oatmeal, that's a discriminatory uh, law. And so it's going to be really easy for you to bring a lawsuit and for a judge to say, like, there's even a little bit of discrimination here. This law is illegal because it's discriminating against Chuck. And he's. it says in the Constitution, you can't discriminate against Chuck. It just means that that the standards for that law um, to stand uh, like everyone else on the planet basically has to benefit from you not getting oatmeal for some gotcha. reason. And that, that that's just not how laws work. So it'd be really easy for you to, to bring a lawsuit and get that law overturned because it discriminates against you because you're a protected class. Now, if it's just like everybody likes Chuck, but it doesn't say in the Constitution that you can't be discriminated against, they're going to use a slightly less strict test to determine whether the thing is, is a discriminatory law or not. And so maybe, yeah, it generally um, promotes oatmeal use among other people, among all people, but there's some other people who don't get it too. That doesn't really matter because, you know, it's not enshrined in the Constitution. So it's almost like degrees. And once you're in the Constitution as you, as a protected class, like it is really difficult to discriminate against you. And that's one reason why people say, no, we need this. We need this in the Constitution because women uh, and sex and gender even should be a protected class. You should not be able to discriminate against somebody based on that. Yeah, I mean, that's the main um, that is the main argument for proponents of the ERA is saying, no, let's make this the real deal. Um, there, you know, cases can be overturned. Laws can be reversed. Executive actions can have devastating impacts, um, and and only being enshrined in the Constitution uh, will make this like like you said, just so locked down and protected yeah. Yeah. that people can't mess with it anymore. 
Uh, I think we've seen in recent years that, you know, precedent can be argued and laws can be overturned. Mm -hmm. And it's like, sure, we have all these laws that passed since the ERA first came, uh, was ratified, you know, in the 1970s. But it doesn't take much, you know, especially when you look at a, a very imbalanced Supreme Court when pe- for people to kind of worry that these these things can be taken away. Yeah, and I mean, like, there was a famous quote from Antonin Scalia when he was alive and a justice on the Supreme Court basically saying, like, no, the Constitution most decidedly does not protect uh, uh, dis- against discrimination on the basis of sex. And, you know, when, when you hear Supreme Court justice saying that, it's like, well, you know, how many cases is it going to take before he rules— like, no, you can totally discriminate against somebody on the basis of sex. If it's in the Constitution, it doesn't matter what Antonin Scalia or any other justice thinks. It's in the Constitution. So that that level of protection, like you were saying, would be – it's just a totally different level of protection than, you know, customarily we, we don't discriminate. It's no, you can't discriminate. That's the difference between those two things. Yeah, and not just reversing laws uh, but passing new laws – that uh, maybe violate uh, violate that equal treatment under the law, mm-hmm. uh, and you know some other things that that, uh, that constitutionally um, could come into play if it if it were to go through is something like the pink tax. I don't think we've ever done a show on the pink tax. I don't think so either. But this is you know this is the notion that like you know from everything that like similar products for men and women uh, they charge women more than they do for men for these products. Um, to stuff like, you know, menstrual equality or equity, basically, you know, tampons, uh, pads, other menstruation products should not be taxed anymore. They should be like treated like any other essential item. Yeah. And then so, so there are a lot of things, a lot of protections that it would afford. One thing that frequently is, um, cited as, as, um, protecting women against is like violence, like say domestic violence. It, from what I read, it probably wouldn't, um, because it protects against being discriminated against by the law. It doesn't necessarily afford protection from like an individual person or something like that. Right. Not necessarily a company. Although being enshrined in the Constitution, you could really sue a company's pants off for discriminating against you. Um, but there are there are some things it would do, some things it wouldn't do, and then there's some things up in the air. And one of the reasons why this is still such a cultural um, flashpoint still today in 2020 is because now more than ever, um, it has become uh, equated with uh, taxpayer-funded abortion. And the, the reasoning behind people who oppose the ERA because they think it's basically tantamount to uh, just completely repealing any restrictions on abortion, abortion from that point on is only women can get abortions. And so if there's a law against abortion, there's a law that's discriminating against women, therefore you can't have laws regulating abortions. And so that's why, especially with the Christian right, it's still such a flashpoint today. And that's why starting from scratch again is going to be no easier than it was back in 1972. Yeah. No, you're probably right. Uh, it's pretty frustrating, though, to get to that 38-state threshold, and because of some dumb, arbitrary expiration date placed on it, yeah, it's still being held up in the year 2021. You know? Yeah, in the year 2021. And then also, the United States has an obligation as like basically the leader of the free world to join the rest of the Western nations in, in enshrining 
uh, equal protection under the law for, for by sex. Um, I, I guess the United States is one of only 28 countries in the world that doesn't guarantee gender equality. One of 28, Chuck, and 100% of the countries that have written their constitution since 1950 have included some uh, guarantee of gender equality in those constitutions. So it's kind of sad that we don't have that still to this day. Yeah, and if you look around the country, uh, this, you know, Dave Ruse helped us out with this article, and he points out stuff like, you know, if you go to Nepal, their Supreme Court uh, struck down a law exempting marital rape from criminal uh, prosecution because of its ERA clause. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Tanzania, uh, the Court of Appeals struck down a law that allowed a 15-year-old girls to be married without parental consent, while boys uh, only had to be at 18. So, you know, when you look at countries around the world that are are seemingly ahead of the USA in in terms of uh equal protection is just it's it's baffling and disappointing. It baffling is right, yeah. You got anything else? I got nothing else. It's good stuff. I I have one more thing if you'll give me another second. You ready? Sure. So when I was researching this my head was just spinning again and again and again. Um, and it reminded me of something that I read recently, and that is that it's really easy to get bounced around from one outrage to another, to one thing, to care about this issue, and then, oh, wait, what about this issue? And I saw some advice somewhere. I don't remember where. But it was, if you want to affect change, pick one issue and dedicate yourself to it. And that doesn't mean that you don't care about all the other issues that you do care about. It's just that this one issue is your specialty. You're an expert in it, and you're probably going to get further going like that. You're probably going to be able to see more change doing that than you would just kind of bouncing from issue to issue to issue. So, I mean, if this like really got to you and you really want to do something about it, make the make getting the ERA passed your specialty, you know? Totally. Uh, okay. Well, thanks for uh, letting me stand on the soapbox for a second. And uh, since I'm getting off of my soapbox and Chuck is putting it up in the soapbox caddy that we keep here in the studio, um, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this a ninja in the Connecticut forest. Nice. Did you read this one? No, I haven't. This is kind of crazy. It's long, but it's worth it. Okay. Uh, Hey guys, when I was about seven, my mom married the man I called dad, and we promptly moved from Texas to Connecticut, where we used to go camping a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, On one trip, we're all out in the woods, midnight rolls around, I go to bed. About an hour later, I heard my tent unzipping, and my dad started shaking my foot, saying, come out here, there's an effing ninja. (laughs) So I throw on some slippers and my jacket, begrudgingly trudge out to see, I kid you not, a ninja sitting next to the fire pit. I remember actually shaking my head in disbelief to reaffirm this wasn't some very strange dream. And now when I say there was a ninja, I mean full black garb with a slit to see through. This dude had twin swords on his back, throwing stars, tiger claws for climbing, grapple hooks, all the tools. Apparently, my dad saw him rolling out of a bush and had to see what was going on. The story behind this guy was he was a national uh, a national guardsman and also ran a uh, Jukendo and ninjutsu dojo in Rhode Island uh-huh. as his main gig. Uh, we sit for the next couple of hours and this guy's just showing us stuff like how fast he can climb a tree or how to throw a star. Oh my God. The night progresses and he asks if we were familiar with Bruce Lee as an avid fan of Enter the Dragon uh, from around eight. I said yes and he asked if, if I'd ever seen his one inch punch. 
Uh, excitedly, I said, sure, I have. And then his name was Brian, the ninja. He said, Brian then asked if he could demonstrate it on me, a pudgy 12-year-old. I said, no, thanks. I'm good. And I explicitly did not want to fly backwards with any force. Uh, and he said, no, no, I'll do it with an open palm so it doesn't hurt. I give in. He positions me safely away from the fire pit with my back facing the tent about seven feet away from anything. Uh, never trust anyone, by the way, whose instruction is, okay, now just stand there while I hit you. <laughs> uh, he inhales deeply, does the flat hand against my sternum, just like in Kill Bill. Then in an instant, I saw his muscles tense up as he audibly exhaled sharply and hit my chest open-handed. I go airborne and hit my tailbone next on a tent stake ah. seven feet behind me and can't really walk without crutches for a couple of weeks. Wow. Uh, kids at school never believe me when prodding about why I was on crutches because who would believe a kid that says I had a run-in with a ninja in the middle of the woods? Wow. Uh, that is from Drew Carroll in uh, Cheyenne, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Cheyenne, Cheyenne <laughs> Wyoming. Cheyenne, Wyoming. That is true. A great, great story. That was a magnificent listener mail. I mean, hats off for that one. Thank you. And if you're Brian. And you're out there. I want to hear what happened to you. Yeah. Uh, he's probably He's like, I've been doing a 10-year bid for beating a kid up in the woods, but the kid <laughs> said I could hit him. Oh, boy. Uh, well, if you want to get in touch with us like Drew and try to top Drew's e- a listener mail. Drew, by the way, is the current listener mail champion. Um, we want to see if you can do it. You can send us an email, wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 